Good evening. Welcome to the UCL Institute of the Americas. My name is Tony McCulloch. I'm uh, in charge of the Canadian Studies Programme here. Uh, we have um, been having uh, Canadian events throughout the term. This is our last one of the term, although there will be more uh, in the new year. Uh, and it gives me very great pleasure uh, to introduce a figure who is well known to some of you in particular, uh, Mel Cap. Uh, just a, a brief introduction from his long and illustrious career. He's currently a uh, professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, where he teaches in the master's programme and is the coordinator of the undergraduate programme in public policy. Uh, before that, from 2006 to 2011, he was president of the Institute for Research on Public Policy, and before that, and uh, what is uh, best known to uh, many of us here for is serving for four years as the High Commissioner for Canada to the United Kingdom uh, from 2002 to 2006. And some of you will remember him being here in London at that time. He's also worked as the Clerk of the uh, Privy Council, uh, the Secretary to the Cabinet and Head of the Public Service in Ottawa. Earlier still in his career, he held senior economic and policy positions in the departments of finance and industry. In, for example, he was Deputy Secretary to the Treasury Board, Deputy Minister of the Environment, Deputy Minister of uh, Labour, and, and that's uh, just a selection. He did graduate studies in economics at the Universities of Western Ontario and Toronto, and now has honorary doctorates from both of those universities. In 2009, he was made an officer of the Order of Canada for his contribution to the federal public services. Fortunately for us, uh, he was over here anyway, <laughs> in the UK, uh, in Cambridge, where the most recent Canada-UK colloquium has just taken place on uh, <coughs> ageing well, I think was the title. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to hearing from Mel this evening, so please join me in welcoming him for his trip. Thank you kindly, uh, Tony. I, uh, there's old friends and new friends here, and I'm looking forward to this evening. Um, I should tell you that um, I was brought along to this conference as a specimen of aging well, uh, so uh, uh, my grey beard gives it away. The um, other thing that as I listen to your introduction uh, that, that is sort of interesting is that currently I have a title that only a university could give, uh, two titles. I'm a full professor part-time and I am the director of undergraduate studies in the Graduate School of Public Policy. Uh, don't ask. Uh, of course, my mother could never understand why at the end of my career I was becoming a clerk and a secretary. Um, and then when I became High Commissioner, she couldn't really understand any of that. Uh, and you know, I was defining myself by how my mother responded to my, uh, my jobs. <laughs> Look, um, I, I wanted to talk a bit about um, Brexit and uh, a Canadian perspective, and I know I'm in the lion's den here, and uh, you are all uh, encouraged not to throw buns or glasses of water at me, but um, I will be presumptuous, uh, like a colonial uh, would, and uh, tell you what you should be doing. 
uh, and try to interpret a little bit of um, what some of the lessons for Canada and for other countries uh, is going to be coming out of Brexit. And um, a, a little bit of an arm's length distant uh, perspective to provide a, a, a sense of what, uh, uh, what I think is, is happening and going to happen. I had to think about what I would, uh, how I would characterize uh, this, and I thought of two themed theme songs that I would have identified, and some of you in the audience will know, and the students probably will have no uh, relationship to this at all. But in 1962, Neil Sedaka uh, had a great song called Breaking Up is Hard to Do. Okay? That's theme number one. Theme number two is from Connie Francis in 1958 saying, who's sorry now? Okay? So with those two ideas in mind, I'll walk through some of the things that um, I find fascinating uh, trying to be analytic and not emotional uh, about Brexit. And I, I will come back to uh, the role of analysis. Patrick, we were just talking about the role of research. Uh, but the role of analysis and evidence uh, versus uh, the role of emotion, uh, the question of head versus heart. And uh, I, won't, I will play uh, to that uh, for a little bit. Um, as uh, you all know, um, Britain, the United Kingdom joined uh, the European Union in 1973. Um, my favorite question for uh, my students is, when do you think the, um, uh, the idea started for entering the Union, and when did it start to leave the European Union? I won't make this a test. Uh, but interestingly, the first application, uh, again, you probably are all aware of this, but uh, the first application was in 1961. Uh, so since 1961 to now, we have been having this controversy about uh, Brexit, and people are uh, agonizing and have been agonizing about it for that long. Of course, you were rejected by the French uh, twice, uh, oh, through the 60s, and then in 73, uh, you joined uh, the, U the European Union. I, when I asked my, my students, and when do you think the Brexit discussion started, they all say 1974. Um, I actually tell them that they're wrong about that. Um, and part of my point here is that history matters. Um, and that indeed, if you go back the first uh, time that Britain or England took itself out of uh, the European uh, notion, the sense of being European, uh, was 1534, and Henry VIII said, uh, we're not going to be part of those continentalists in Rome uh, and the Roman Catholic Church, and we'll go our own way. And if you roll the tape back, of course, uh, Guillaume le Conquerant was not welcomed when he arrived at Hastings, uh, and we've had this sentiment going back to the, to the Romans. Uh, well, I, I, when um, Britain, and not Canada, uh, went into Iraq, the first thing I did was go to the British Museum to learn more about Iraq, uh, and um, I found it fascinating. So I was just at the BM yesterday, um, and looking at uh, the Roman arrival uh, back uh, before Christ, and. Uh, 
you know, when you think about the Celts having been here, uh, they weren't too happy with the Europeans even then. And the history matters. And there has been this continuous uh, antipathy towards being European. There's this wonderful joke that you've probably all heard, most of my Canadian audiences haven't, that when, you, when there's fog in the channel, the continent is cut off. Uh, and it's, of course, it's this notion that here we are in London, the center of the universe, and everything else are the antipodes. Um, and of course, Canada is literally, but that's a different point. Uh, so the history matters. And if you, uh, if you think about, um, uh, if those of you who watched The Crown uh, that just uh, was posted on Netflix, at least in Canada, was just posted, and uh, uh, Harold Wilson is, um, is prime minister, and he's going through this agony of, uh, uh, trying to manage his party as um, uh, they're a few years on from the um, uh, entry into the European Union and there's this uh, huge challenge uh, uh, politically. I want to say institutions matter. So history matters. My second point is that institutions matter. And by institutions, I mean um, the monarch. The sovereign has a role to play. Now, the sovereign plays a role both in promoting independence and that sentiment of uh, being the center of the empire. Uh, and the monarch plays a role in, uh, in being the referee uh, for uh, parliament. And uh, we've, we've seen that um, as Boris Johnson referred to the sovereign, um, and Queen Elizabeth took his advice. Uh, of course, the queen over the years, going back to Elizabethan times, has been constrained, increasingly constrained in her discretion uh, by the supremacy of parliament. And uh, it may have started uh, uh, back in Elizabethan times, but it's culminating now in Elizabethan times. Uh, and this, the role of Parliament as an institution, uh, is one of those great lessons, I think, that we are learning about. <clears throat> and the role of Parliament vis-a-vis -vis the executive is a tension that has existed for a long time, but we're now seeing, we saw this past year, it came to a head in uh, the Supreme Court coming to judgment on whether the Prime Minister had the discretion to go to the Queen to ask for dissolution or not, or, or prorogation. And then um, the, uh, uh, the Supreme Court, a relatively recent institution, granted it has a long history in the law lords, but a relatively recent institution with uh, Lady Hale uh, offering a judgment, a unanimous judgment, on whether the Prime Minister was uh, correct and, and legitimate in uh, seeking prorogation or not. Um, Canada went through this about um, uh, five uh, or six, actually six years ago, when Prime Minister Harper asked the uh, uh, Governor General to prorogue Parliament. And uh, the term prorogation was known to about seven of us in the country. Um, and by that time, after the controversy, everybody in Canada knew uh, what it meant to prorogue Parliament. And we've seen that uh, here uh, it's become common knowledge now 
pro what prorogation means. Interestingly, in the Canadian uh, case, the Prime Minister knew he was going to lose a, a vote in Parliament and asked for prorogation. And the Governor General uh, went next door uh, and had one of the premier uh, constitutional scholars, Peter Hogg, in the next room and consulted with him, came back in the room and agreed to issue the order to, to parole Parliament. And at the same time, to recall Parliament three weeks thence. So what she faced was this tension between the Crown taking advice from the Prime Minister and recognizing the supremacy of Parliament. And so the then Governor General, Mikhail Jean, um, uh, acting on behalf of the Queen as the Queen's representative and acting as the Crown, um, recognized that she needed two orders to legitimize uh, the prorogation, and uh, that came through uh, loudly and clearly. Um, institutions. So, Parliament, the supremacy of Parliament is primordial in this, and um, uh, when Parliament is hung, uh, whether it's a hung Parliament or not, I mean, the last Parliament was, uh, when Theresa May's Parliament was a majority Parliament, and, um, and she couldn't get her party to agree. Uh, we, she then called an election which faithfully um, came back with a minority, a hung Parliament, um, and now uh, Boris Johnson facing that, and Prime Minister Johnson hoping to come back with a majority, irrespective of majority or minority. We created a representative government for a reason. It's because we have complex problems to solve and we need deliberation. And so deliberativeness is a, an essential element of parliament and we have representatives to delve deeply into complex subjects in order to weigh the pros and cons and make a judgment. We do not think of referenda as being particularly democratic. I don't, at least. There is a presumption that if you go to the public, of course it's more democratic to have a referendum. I don't think that's actually true on a complex question. And Canada, we've had this, when we had referenda on whether Quebec uh, should secede or not. And so the, um, the problem was, yes, it's very useful to sound out the public by having a referendum. And a democracy is healthy if it can uh, do a focus group of the entire population. But it's not if the referendum becomes executive, executoire. That if you have to then exercise the rights that the, the public have voted for in a referendum, these are complex questions, you need deliberation. So what Canada did following the 1995 referendum, and I'll tell you, in uh, 2000, I was uh, secretary to cabinet, and Chrétien uh, wanted to proceed with uh, the Clarity Act, so-called. And I'll divulge all kinds of secrets now. I was vigorously opposed, because we were six years on from the referendum, uh, the, the, the sleeping dog was snoring at the fireplace, don't kick it, and don't um, introduce the Clarity Act. In fairness, I was wrong, he was right. 
uh, we passed this legislation which said that a referendum can only be executoire if it's a clear majority on a clear question. Now, we haven't defined what a clear majority or a clear, or a clear question is, but clearly what we had before, you only say clearly when it's not clear, clearly we had a previous circumstance where we did not have a clear question because the question was something like, uh, are you in favor of sovereignty association between an independent Quebec and a strong and united Canada? What the hell does that mean? Uh, and of course, we didn't get a clear answer. We had a majority against of 50,000 votes. Uh, so that was a squeaker. Uh, but the notion that you would need a clear... Uh, I'm, I'm belaboring the point to underscore the importance of de deliberateness and deliberativeness in Parliament. These are complicated businesses. These are complex questions. If anyone doubted that, look at the way the Conservative Party has handled the legislation that's come forward after the negotiations with the European Union. The parties split, let alone the, the Parliament split. We, you need people to be able to study this and make a judgment. Other institutions, the civil service. Um, you know, in uh, 20, October 2016, when the uh, referendum took place, how many trade negotiators were there in Whitehall? Zero. Because the competence for trade negotiation was in Brussels for the union. So, quick, so Canada actually offered its senior trade negotiator to the United Kingdom in order to face off against uh, all the talent that was in uh, Brussels. Um, the civil service has upped its game uh, since then, uh, has done a, a credible job, I would argue, and um, has been an important uh, player in this. Another institution I haven't often talked about, actually, in Canada is the Library of Parliament. Uh, and the, the best research source for serious uh, study of, of Brexit and its impact is the dispassionate uh, library of uh, parliament researchers. And the research branch has done some uh, fascinating work and published scores of uh, documents. Process matters. I said history, institutions, and process. Um, the process of deliberateness, I've talked about uh, parliament and such, um, the process of, off, of negotiation, You've seen uh, the negotiations and how complex they are when uh, the uh, uh, negotiators, um, uh, David Frost and before him, Ollie Robinson, uh, were in Brussels doing these negotiations. And, um, and the processes on both sides are really, really important. Don't forget you need 27 sovereign states member states in the European Union, to agree unanimously. I want to come back to the comprehensive economic and trade agreement between Canada and the EU. Most people think CETA means Canada-EU trade agreement. It's not. It's the comprehensive economic and trade agreement with, between Canada and the EU. Um, and I'll talk more about it later. But it, it came a, ran afoul of Wallonia. 
Nobody in Canada thought that the Walloons would lie down on the tracks and get in the way. And then, for that matter, nobody in Brussels or Paris or London thought that either. But they needed unanimity. And, they, and in Belgium, they needed the two um, uh, parts of Belgium to have their local governments agree. And Wallonia didn't agree. So our foreign minister ended up spending days and days in Belgium, running back and forth um, among the Belgians, trying to get them to agree. And there's this famous iconic picture of her on the steps of, par of uh, Parliament in uh, Belgium. The, and uh, by this, I don't mean Brussels, the, the European capital. I mean Belgium. And, uh, and she's in tears because they're about to kill the Comprehensive Economic Trade Agreement that she has just spent three years negotiating. Anyway, finally it worked out. I think we threw bananas in or some you know, agricultural product and they were happy uh, and we got a deal. But I say that so that you keep in mind that you know, you, you know, the Europeans are going to need the Poles to agree. You're going to need all those member states to come to terms. So processes matter. And the process isn't only the process in the United Kingdom. It's a process in the continent as well. History, institutions, processes, people. People matter. Um, I don't think uh, there would have been a deal, either the Theresa May deal or the Boris Johnson redeal, which is basically May plus a few tweaks, uh, would have happened if Michel Barnier hadn't been an experienced negotiator. Here was a former French foreign minister who had done international negotiations widely, uh, sophisticated uh, man of the world. Uh, he was a real leader and I think was the delegated authority and they had enough confidence in him to take his judgment when he said there was a deal. Uh, so the 27 states came along. And I think um, that he was a crucial player in this. And another lead negotiator on the European side would have led to, I think, a different outcome or a more difficult outcome. Um, similarly, you know, as much as people might love to hate uh, Juncker and Tusk, um, they had an objective which was to resolve this as quickly as possible. And in the absence of those individuals, I think it wouldn't have, uh, it would have come a problem. More importantly, people matter in the, Brit in the British side, in the United Kingdom. David Cameron, I said this on uh, the CBC the day after the referendum, there is a special place in hell for leaders who put the existential future of their country at risk. Uh, when uh, they try to resolve party problems. Uh, Cameron, uh, in his recent book, defends this by talking about how Blair had said he would have a referendum on uh, Europe, how uh, Brown had said he would have a referendum on Europe. <clears throat> He's proving my point. They said they would, but they didn't do it. He said he would, and he did. And I, I think that uh, there are, you know, the, the fact that David Cameron did that, I think, is, uh, is problematic. Now, Theresa May, 
I think she may have been, after Gordon Brown, one of the smartest recent uh, prime ministers that we've had. Um, but I don't think she was a very good politician. And the role of politics in bringing people together, in managing conflict, uh, is crucially important and depends on personality. Boris Johnson, you know, he, uh, there are many people who would call him a liar, a prevaricator, a procrastinator, all kinds of terrible things, uh, but um, he's actually a very clever politician. <laughs> and you may not like him, but you've got to admire his ability to bring people together. So people matter. So history, institutions, processes, and people. I could go on. Um, a couple of quick issues uh, to touch on before um, I open it up for questions. I really do want to have okay, more of a right. dialogue. Um, the first is sovereignty. And this is... Um, I think at the essence of this, there is a notion, and we can go back to 1648, you can tell I, I actually never studied history, but I've become a recent uh, interest in history, and uh, the Treaty of Westphalia and the notion of the creation of, a na of nation states uh, is re really important here, and the sovereignty of the nation state is, is uh, essential, um, and the more that authority seeds out to uh, multilateral organizations and down to subnational organizations uh, devolution um, the more there is a need I think for a strong member state uh, nation state uh, to be able to govern and uh, that isn't to take away from the importance of multilateral institutions like the United Nations or the European Union or um, pick your poison. Uh, Canada, I've, I used to say, was uh, we would join any club. Uh, we always wanted to be in every club, and our application for joining the European Union was still pending. Um, but we, we really do, um, uh, and th this is a result of living next to the United States. We believe in rules-based everything, because we need to tie Gulliver down. So living next to the largest, uh, most powerful country in the world means we have to find mechanisms, international collaborative mechanisms, to constrain the monster we live next door to. Uh, and you could ask, how's that working for you now? And the answer is not as well as it used to. Uh, but we can come back to that. But sovereignty is something we're thinking about. And, you know, David Cameron, and he elaborates this in the book, um, really thought that he could convince the British public that it was in their interest to stay in the European Union. I thought that too. I thought in, in the Canadian example of a referendum on sovereignty, uh, I thought all we had to do was talk about the economic consequences of, of Quebec seceding, and it would be self-evident no one would want to vote for secession. We, I, I admit to forgetting the importance of identity in this. And it, what drives this isn't head, it's heart. And the way you feel about your nas nation manifests itself in nationalism. And that's what um, I think drives this. And so this tension between economy and identity, um, identity will win every time. 
And so you need to, the way I characterize this in the Canadian referendum case, was we needed to find a positive reason to vote no against secession. Very hard to cast the question that way. Nicholas, were you in Canada at the time? Uh, I was indeed, yes. Yeah? Okay, so I agree former High Commissioner. commissioner. <laughs> um, to the uh, Canada. So uh, that economy versus identity is, is hugely important. I've talked about representative democracy. Let me talk about parties for a minute. I, again, I think institutions matter and parties are important. Uh, and typically, and for the last uh, sort of the previous century, uh, through to 2000 and beyond, perhaps, uh, parties were big tent politics. You could bring together people with different points of view, log roll, come to a common understanding of what they stood for based on values, and the party would have a position. And you didn't get everything you wanted, but you got most of it, and the party stood for something. And now what we've seen, and we're seeing more of this, is the fracturing of politics and parties. And the parties, so, you know, the great advantage of first past the post is that uh, this reinforces the role of parties. Um, if you go to a PR system, you reinforce the idea of the Melcap party. I mean, it's going to be in my interest to set up my own party because then they'll come and negotiate with me. Uh, whereas if I join somebody's party, um, then I get subser become subservient. So uh, party politics is important in this, and the role of parties is important. And what we're seeing in the United States is the hijacking of the, of the Republican Party. Um, we're seeing the parties go to their corners, uh, become more extreme, less um, accommodating and less um, uh, rationalizing of extreme positions. And uh, I think that parties, uh, what we just saw in Canada with five parties uh, running was the Green Party. There was a great incentive for the Green Party to be different and not to throw in with the New Democratic Party, although there were many similarities. And um, I worry about the fracturing of uh, those politics uh, and, and how parties are going to uh, play a, a different role uh, in the future. Um, complexity, and I'll, I'll then turn to some Canadian stories, but I want to talk about complexity because um, I mentioned the research uh, uh, reports of the Library of Parliament. Um, there, the issues of uh, complexity, uh, the way we deal with complexity, is so fundamentally important. Uh, political scientists talk about uh, path dependence, and there's a sense of that in the complexity issue. We've resolved a lot of tensions. We've resolved a lot of complexity. And that's what has led to the, the system of governance that we have and the way um, we have policy and programs in place. To undo uh, the resolution of those uh, problems, Bendy Bananas, uh, that was always my favorite. Um, Boris Johnson, in, when he was uh, in Brussels, wrote about the Bendy Bananas, like why is Brussels imposing this, it turns out, it actually came out of Whitehall, but it, it was that there, 
it can't be excessive curvature in a banana, or else it doesn't qualify as grade A bananas. Well, it turns out Canada has a bendy banana rule. I mean, we don't like excessively curved bananas. Now, we allow them in, but we, you can't call them grade A. Uh, so we resolve the quality problem for consumers by having a regulation on bendy bananas. If you guys leave the European Union, the argument is, well, we'll just trade on WTO rules. That's well, escape. So it turns out that the trade rules, the trade rules for the WTO are 30,000 pages. Okay? 30,000 pages. There's a document, this is a brilliant document, called Understanding the WTO. 112 pages. Okay? So we'll just trade on WTO rules. Okay. Well, there's a, I have a friend, uh, a trade expert, a friend uh, from Queen's University in uh, Kingston, who's in Geneva today, uh, working on the problem of the appeal court of the WTO not having had a new judge appointed in two years. And the problem is that you can't appeal to them anymore. And they're about to become moribund if they don't, and who's getting in the way? The United States of America. So just trade at WTO rules, have fun with that. Um, it's like Boris Johnson saying, we will not allow uh, the agreement on um, drawing the border in the Irish Sea to go ahead unless Stormont agrees. When was the last time Stormont met? The Parliament in Stormont hasn't met in three in two and a half years. I won't exaggerate. So they can't agree to meet, let alone agree to agree on the uh, agreement, so-called, that uh, Boris Johnson has negotiated. Okay, a couple of comments about Canada, and then I'll stop. So the Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement. Should have been pretty simple. I told you all about the, the last couple of weeks. The fact is it took seven years to negotiate. Okay? Seven years, full-time negotiators meeting on and off, but doing work in the background. Uh, that actually is an underestimate because you guys will remember that it was Roy McLaren, uh, your former boss, who uh, started this 20 years earlier. We had to build a consensus in Canada that we even wanted a trade agreement with the European Union. So the notion that 11 months from January 31st, 2020 to December 31st, 2020 will be 11 months of intensive negotiation and we'll get a new trade agreement. Piece of cake, good luck. Uh, what's in it for the Europeans? What will they get out of it? And why are they going to go rush to a deal? I have no idea. And when Liam Fox came over to Canada under Theresa May as trade minister, um, he said, we, we will look forward to a trade agreement with Canada after we leave the European Union. And it won't be a complicated one. We'll just get a deal. And the Canadians are saying, so you're going to lower your tariffs. You've got nothing to give us. And you think we're going to give you a deal? Why would that be? We took three years to renegotiate NAFTA. We already had a deal on NAFTA. 
It took us three years to renegotiate the deal. So, comprehensive economic and trade agreement with Canada, uh, good luck. Um, trade actually isn't the important thing, although it is important, uh, it's not the most important thing, um, but all the wings on Bombardier aircraft are made in Northern Ireland. And Bombardier just sold Short Brothers, uh, but uh, they, uh, they're still going to buy the wings out of Northern Ireland. They don't know what the rules are going to be. This is not, you know, are there other people willing to make wings? You betcha. Um, you're putting at risk a lot of uh, important relationships. One of the sad things for Canada is that we will lose a voice in Brussels by Britain no longer being present in the councils of Europe. Uh, and I have a couple of examples where Canada has used the privileged relationship, I won't say special, uh, the privileged relationship we have with the United Kingdom to have the UK represent us on issues in Brussels. And when people ask me what's the most important thing I ever did in my career, I have sort of two answers. One is about 9-11 and uh, keeping the border with the United States open. And the other is uh, getting Saskatoon berries admitted into the European Union. The, the Saskatoon berries is the real one. Because if you are one of the five or six uh, farmers who grow Saskatoon berries, it's life or death for you to be, but it was Britain who got Canada a special deal not to be treated as a novelty, uh, to have Saskatoon berries admitted as a food product. Um, and we, we actually will lose that uh, voice. When Canada went through, uh, when Quebec went through its um, uh, referendum, uh, the First Nations, Indian peoples in the north of Quebec, said, well, if Quebec is separable from Canada, then maybe our territories in the north of Quebec are separable from Quebec. And we choose to go with Canada. Sounds like the SNP. Um, the, the challenge here is that um, you have triggered uh, a reinforcement of um, separatism, if you will, uh, around the world. And now the headlines every day for the last two months since the election has been about Wexit. And that is Western alienation and the Western provinces wanting to secede from Canada or renegotiate the, the, the deal, what Confederation gives them. Um, I was at this conference, as uh, Tony mentioned, in uh, Cambridge. And, there was a woman there from Nova Scotia, from Dalhousie University, and I asked her what the Nova Scotia reaction to Wexit is. She said, well, actually, we're thinking of taking Nova Scotia out of Canada, joining up with Scotland, and joining the European Union. So, I thought that was very clever, actually. So, uh, Nova Scotia. Um, and final, so, let me, um, in conclusion, just offer a couple of uh, uh, homilies. The first, it's hard to unscramble the eggs. So breaking up is hard to do. Integration and interdependence is everywhere. I remember when, um, uh, in 2008, when the 
Great Recession took place, and Gordon Brown was prime minister, and he said, don't worry, our economy is decoupled from the United States, and it's the US that's going through this terrible recession. Well, decoupling, give me a break. We are interdependent, we are uh, totally integrated, and um, separating is very difficult. Everything is more complex than it looks. Representative democracy is a good idea. Referendum on complex issues is a bad idea. Don't try to solve party problems with existential choices. Parliament is truly sovereign. And this is one of the most important uh, lessons, I think. Negotiating with the home team, what Boris Johnson has just had to do in Parliament with his own party, is often harder than with the other side. It was easier to come to an agreement with uh, Michel Barnier and uh, Jean-Claude Juncker than to come to a, a deal with Philip Hammond. Uh, there's a lesson in there. Be careful what you wish for, and that's my Connie Francis Sue story now. Um, longing for the good old days is the result of old bad memories. Um, it takes a lot longer than you think and it's not only about tariffs. It's about sanitary and phytosanitary regulation and restrictions. It's about investment. Uh, it's about services. And there are demonstration effects that take place around the world. And with that, I'll shut up. Thanks, okay. Tony.